Father, this morning we thank you for sending your Son. On this Christmas morning we celebrate the fact that because he has come, the very name of Father takes on added significance. Jesus became a Son of Man that we might become sons of God. He became flesh and dwelt among us that we might be made perfect and dwell with you forever. We thank you, Father, that your Son was conceived, not created. He was born but did not originate. And now we come to hear your voice through your word that we might treasure you more. So as Jesus was born that we might have life, may we live in light of his birth and his ministry and his death and his resurrection and his impending return. And we ask this in his holy name. Amen. Beloved, uh, take your Bible and join me in the book of Galatians this morning. That might seem an odd choice for a Christmas morning, but I think that you will see that even Paul has something to say about how our Savior came into this world. Paul's not known for his talk about the virgin birth or the circumstances of Christ's birth, but there is one place in particular, and that's where we're going to be in Galatians 4. This is the Lord's Day. This is also the day we set aside to commemorate Jesus' birth. But it is more than His birth. It is His incarnation. It is that act of God by which He set in motion events through which He would and will save all of His people. In these worldly days, it is important to remember that. Much can be said, and and I have said so before. Even Linus in the Charlie Brown special has warned us of the dangers of commercialism and materialism and just being worldly this time of year. The draw toward that is everywhere around us. But we need to be especially careful about that as Christians. We still, while we are on this earth, are in danger of worshiping idols. As one of the great reformers once wrote, man's nature is a perpetual, a perpetual factory of idols. Literally, our hearts are idol factories. And we can put almost anything in the place of God in our lives and in our hearts. And that can still be true on Christmas Day. And that's one reason I am especially glad you are here this morning. Because for at least a few minutes, we have an opportunity to open the Word and to remember what this is all about. And go from there. So let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Today, beloved, People all over the country, people all over the world are opening presents. Maybe you have done that already. Maybe you are waiting until later on in the day after lunch or something. I know that I'm looking forward to it. I know that my children are looking forward to it. And uh, I know many of you are as well. But let us at least for this time remember and carry with us that there is, and then I want my own children to know this too, that there is nothing greater in heaven or on earth 
than being a child of God. There is nothing greater than the knowledge that you are a son or a daughter of God Himself, that God is your Father. And that's the context in which Paul wrote these verses. He's talking about what God has accomplished for us, our salvation through Jesus, and it boils down to us being adopted as sons and daughters of God. And I want you to note that word adopted because we don't start off children of God. We are not born that way. One of the great lies that so many people believe these days is that we're all children of God. But if we do a survey of Scripture, that's just not what we find in the, in the Bible itself. Yes, we all have God as our Creator, and you could say that He's our Father of, of everything in that sense. But in Scripture, even out of the mouth of Jesus, there are only two kinds of people in this world. You are either one whose father is God, or you are of your father the devil. That's what Jesus says. And having the devil as your father is how we all start in this world. We are all born into sin. We all have a sinful nature. We're all alienated from God. We are all outside of His family from the start, and we can't do anything about that in and of ourselves. So it does take something, it takes someone outside of us to save us from sin and from death and from hell. And that's why thanks be to God this morning for Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Because when the fullness of the time came, Paul writes, God sent forth His Son. And I want to explore that concept for a few minutes the fullness of the time, because it points Christians in first century Galatia just as much as it points 21st century Christians today to the reality that the sending of Jesus is not something that just happened. It's not an event that, that, that was just conjured up. It was planned, and it was announced, and it was foretold, and then it was carried out, fulfilling eternal divine purposes in space and time. Indeed, the first coming of Christ was definitively announced beforehand. And it was announced in terms so unmistakable that it's clear Jesus is the only one who could be the one. And believe it or not, it all starts in Genesis 3. It starts in the Garden of Eden as sin enters the world and death through sin. Adam is told by God, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the one in the middle of the garden. And if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And we all know what happened next. The serpent deceived Eve. Adam went right along with it. They ate. And at that moment, they spiritually died. Their fellowship with Yahweh was cut off such that they were ejected from the Garden of Eden. But before God cast them out, He cast... Uh, he, he cursed the woman, he cursed the man, but first he cursed the serpent to whom he said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. That is the first announcement right from the beginning of a coming Savior, a specific seed of the woman, a he who would crush the serpent's head. So throughout mankind, cursed mankind because of sin, knows help is coming. 
God was going to send someone. And that promise is expanded as you walk through Genesis. The seed wasn't Cain, it wasn't Abel, it wasn't Seth, it wasn't Noah. But there's this man named Abram in Genesis 12, later renamed Abraham. And and God promises to bless him and curse those who curse him. And through through him, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. But how? Through one of his countless descendants. And so the promise goes through Isaac and it goes through Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. Would it be one of them? No. But we do read about one of them, Judah, in Genesis 49.10, that the scepter would not depart from his descendants until Shiloh comes. What does Shiloh mean? It means the one to whom it belongs. So what that's saying is the scepter would not depart the tribe of Judah until the one whose scepter it really is comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, meaning everybody. And then nothing. For 400 years, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are slaves in Egypt until God raised up a descendant of Jacob, Moses, to lead his people to freedom. It wasn't him, though, because he's not even from the tribe of of Judah. And we're in Exodus now, but they cross the Red Sea and they come to the mountain and God constitutes them as a nation. He gives them law, commandments. But Moses was not the promised one. Moses does tell all of Israel, though, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 and following, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So this promised head crusher would be a prophet who spoke the very words of God. And it wasn't Joshua, it wasn't Gideon, it wasn't Samson, it wasn't even David. But God did make a covenant with David. In 2 Samuel 7, He said, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And of course we know that Solomon came after David, but Solomon did not live forever. And Solomon stopped being king the second he died. So it would be another, another descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and now David, God's people would wait for the son of David. The prophet Isaiah would tell us even more. In chapter 7, he would be born of a virgin. He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this would be God as a man. In Isaiah 8, this one would become a sanctuary, but both houses of Israel would stumble over him and fall and be broken. We know that they eventually, Israel rejected Messiah when he first came. In Isaiah 9, the people who walk in darkness, spiritual darkness, saw a great light. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. So the son would already be, but he would be given at a point in time. And the government would rest upon his shoulders. He is called Wonderful 
Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there is and will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom. And by the way, Isaiah 9 is written 200 plus years after David died and 750 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 10, the Holy One will exact justice for sin. So this one coming will judge. In Isaiah 11, He's the spring who will come forth from the root of Jesse, David's father. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's so unmistakable who this is speaking of. But it gets even more specific. How about another prophet? How about Micah? Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So not only was Jesus' lineage laid out in Scripture, so was the city of His birth. And the irony of that is what we just read in Luke 2 at the beginning of our service, that Joseph and Mary didn't even live in, in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. And, but they were compelled to travel to Bethlehem because a would-be ruler of the world over 1,400 miles away, Caesar Augustus in Rome, ordered a census. So God orchestrated through time the people from whom Messiah would come, and God orchestrated through, through time and through earthly powers the very place from where Messiah would come. And not only that, God orchestrated the very time that the Messiah would come. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 9. You can keep a thumb in Galatians if you want to, but turn with me to Daniel 9 because I want you to see something. The full weight of the phrase, the fullness of the time, is only understood if we consider that Daniel, who is exiled in Babylon 500 years before Christ, Judah, Jerusalem, the temple, it's all been decimated. But God would not leave His people without hope. No, the angel Gabriel who, by the way, is the same angel who will one day appear to Joseph and to Mary. He appears to Daniel in Daniel 9, and look at verse 24. He says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now this sounds like things that are going to happen when we see Christ come back. And that's true. But what happens here, 70 weeks literally means 70 sevens. 70 groups of sevens. And it refers to groups of years. We see this terminology used in Genesis as well. In our Genesis study, we saw in chapter 29, Jacob wanted Rachel for a wife, and so he agreed to serve seven years for her. And when Laban, Rachel's father, swindled him, 
He said, you've served your week for, for Leah, now serve your week or seven years for Rachel. And of course, that's what Jacob did. But, but what Gabriel is telling Daniel here is that God has decreed 77s of years for your people in Jerusalem, or 490 years. So there would be this time of, 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 of God's calendar, okay? 490 years. Now what does that have to do with anything? Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern. So know and discern, okay? Be watching for this. Be mindful of this. Be alert for this. That from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. But seven weeks and 62 weeks. What he's saying here is God would start the ticking on this prophetic calendar when the exile was ending and the order was given to rebuild Jerusalem. And that's in Nehemiah chapter 2, we find that. So from then until Messiah the Prince would be six or uh, seven weeks and 62 weeks, 483 years. 69 of those 77s. And then verse 26, after that time, Messiah would be cut off and have nothing. In other words, he would be killed, he would be crucified. We think about this, and I know that's kind of a lot to take in, and, and really one day I'll, I'll spend some more time on all of that. But why do you think the Holy Spirit told Simeon in Luke 2 that he would literally see the Lord's Christ before he died? Why do you think people like Anna in that same chapter rejoiced and praised God when she saw a, an eight-day-old baby? And then went on to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And why, as we read in Luke 3.15, were the people in a state of expectation and wondering whether John the Baptist might be the Christ? It is because from the book of Daniel, people did know that it was time for Messiah to come. In God's prophetic calendar, it was time for the filling up of these things, for the filling up of the times. It was time for the Messiah, so in the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son. So God told us who He would come from. God told us where He would come from. And God did give us the general time of when He could be expected in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, his son, showing this child would be divine. He would be God, very God. He would be Yahweh. He would be the Lord in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the same God we read of throughout the Old Testament. This would be him. That he was born of a woman shows he would be a man. Just like we saw in Isaiah 8, he, he would be a man. As Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In verse 17, He had to be made like His brethren in all things, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't sin. Okay, Jesus didn't sin. But he had to leave heaven and become like sinners to save sinners. He had to leave heaven and become a man to save mankind. He had to be made like us in all things to make propitiation for us. That is, to bear, and you've heard me say this, the full fury of the wrath of God for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever entrust themselves to Him. Because there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.15 says. So to bridge this impassable gulf between God and man that was formed in the Garden of Eden, it had to be a God-man to do it. Jesus Christ. So God sent His Son born of a woman. And born under the law. God gave Adam law and he failed to obey. God gave Israel law and they failed to obey. God gives us law. And we fail to obey. Even those like Noah and Abraham and Joseph and and Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David. No one has kept God's law perfectly. No one can keep God's law perfectly. No one who is born a sinner, and we all are. But to save those under the law, God sent one who would be under the law himself. To meet God's standard of perfect righteousness. When God gave Israel the law, He said, I'm doing this because you are a holy nation. They failed to live up to that, but Jesus in and of Himself met that standard. Why? Galatians 4, to redeem those under the law. And not merely those Israelites under the law of Moses. Part of what we read and part of what I kind of skimmed over in Isaiah The people who walk in darkness saw a great light. Matthew quotes that scripture talking about Galilee of the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles are all brought in. Not merely Israelites, but everyone under the law of sin and death. God sent forth His Son to pay the price. To redeem. So that we might receive the adoption as sons. This morning we celebrate the birth of a son. And that has no significance to us in in eternity unless we realize He did it so that we might receive the adoption as sons. That being outside of God's family, He might bring us in. Even as sinners, He might bring us in. And it is the greatest thing to be called a son or daughter of God. And this is even an Old Testament concept. Hosea. What a wonderful book Hosea is. Hosea 1.10. God speaks to those who aren't His people and He says, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not My people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. So the wonder of Christmas is not a manger scene. 
It is that God sent His Son so that we might be made sons and daughters. And if you fail to grasp that this December 25th, Christmas is just going to pass by. But if you trust in the Lord Christ and live in light of Him, the reality of Christmas never goes away. This Christmas morning, we must all be less concerned with what is under our tree than how we are living in light of the one who was crucified on a tree. We read in Galatians 4, 4 and 5 about all of this, but can verse 6 be said of you? Look at verse 6 if you're still there. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. Aramaic was still a common language in Israel at the time. Abba means father, or more tenderly, it means daddy. So Paul here is combining the Aramaic and the Greek as if to say, Abba, pater, daddy, father. Can you say that to him this morning? Are you a son of God? Are you a daughter of God? Maybe you're not sure. How would you know? Paul tells us how you can know. Does your heart cry out for Him? Does your heart cry out for God the Father? Does it cry out? If you are in the family of God this morning, it cries out and it will cry out. But if you search your heart and you're not longing for your Father in heaven then don't let this Christmas end before you cry out to Him. God does have a requirement, and that requirement is perfect righteousness. And our, all of our problem is that there's none righteous, no, not one. And the result, if nothing changes, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. We don't have it in us. And so the, the punishment is what comes, and it's... The lake of fire, it's the penalty of eternal destruction. But God being rich in mercy, God abounding in grace and loving kindness provides one and only one way of salvation. God sent forth His Son. In the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Christmas is the great reminder of the God-man. The great reminder of what God has done to bring man to Him. So as the great hymn says, Come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory. Great things He hath done. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son in humility. He laid in a, a feeding trough. This morning, may those whose hearts are not crying out to you, not crying out for you, be broken and compelled to repent of their sins and in humility and desperation come to you through your son, Jesus. We thank you this morning this Christmas morning, 
for the great purpose for which you have sent him. For he will save his people from their sins. Save your people, Father, that as Christ will return exalted, we might too be exalted at the proper time. And may we never lose sight of the Christ of Christmas. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.